Folgerpod. Folgerpod. A podcast from the friends of Georgia Radio. This is the history of WRAS Album 88, Part 2, with two great guests, both Atlanta natives and both who got their start at WRAS. One went on to be one of the first voices on the air of Peach State Radio. Well, you may not have heard of that, but it's pretty big now. It became Georgia Public Broadcasting. And the other, lit out out of Atlanta after graduating, went to New York and worked for one of the biggest radio stations in the country, WNYC, and also helped produce programs for NPR, including shows like Ask Me Another, The Takeaway, and Talk of the Nation. Now he's an award-winning podcast producer and showrunner living in Los Angeles. Their stories are next. This is Richard Warner, president of Friends of Georgia Radio. We're heading into year two with really big plans for 2023 and beyond. We're working on a new internship and mentoring programs, plus some really special exclusive benefits for our members. And if you experienced last year's radio bash, this year's will be even better. Hold the date, August 26th. And if you want to find out more, stay in touch with Friends of Georgia Radio at friendsofgeorgiaradio.org. If you're not a member yet, please join us as we celebrate and support Georgia Radio. And this is part two of WRAS Revisited. We had a great uh, talk a couple of weeks ago with a couple of great folks from RAS. And we're continuing that with two more really phenomenal guests today. Uh, John Asante, who grew up in Atlanta in Gwinnett County, went to Georgia State, was a DJ at WRAS, also news director and host of several long-running shows from 2007 to 2009. Then John's career path took him to NPR and WNYC in New York, where he was an associate producer working on shows like Ask Me Another Talk of the Nation and The Takeaway. Podcasting was calling, and by 2016, he'd created and was independently producing a podcast about the influence of music on people's lives called Play It Back. Now based in Los Angeles, John is an award-winning independent podcast showrunner, producer, and consultant, and has led production on over 20 podcasts from Pineapple Street Studios, Stitcher, and others. Hi, John. Hello. Thanks for having me, Dennis. Hey, it's great to have you here. And uh, across the table from you is Gail Harris, another Atlanta native who grew up loving Atlanta radio from Quixie and Dixie to WPLO and even Win Radio. Uh, there's a name out of the past. Um, later, while an Emory student, uh, 96 Rock and 94Q got on her uh, screen. And then in the mid-70s, she left Emory for a job in the record industry. And when she went back to school at Georgia State, she started a long association with WRAS on on-air talent from 76 to 83, then did fill-ins and special shows through 93. After RAS, she ended up at Peach State Radio, which is now GPB, and later at WABE. Since her graduation in 96, with an MS in counseling, she's done crisis addiction counseling work and stays connected to Album 88 as a board member of the WRAS Alumni Board. Welcome, Gail. Hey, Dennis. Good to see you. Hey, nice to see you, too. We're going to start with you, too. Uh, you were listening to Atlanta Radio when you were a kid here. Do you remember hearing the GSU students when they were hosting Underground on the WPLO frequency, which is now V103? I mean, was that on your wavelength back then? 
No, at that time I was actually listening to Rick. I had found that one and I might have found PLO, but I didn't really make the association that it was Georgia State at the time. I didn't discover Georgia State Radio until probably about 72. Boy, talk about a quirky radio station. Wreck is is certainly that, isn't it? Always has been. Interesting. Well, Interesting absolutely. and quirky. It was all automated at the time. And um, you could call up and ask for George on the request line. And that was just there because it was Georgia Tech. But that was their name for their automation, I believe, as well. So in the mid-70s, you were at Emory, helped spearheading a drive to reestablish Emory's carrier current radio station. That was eventually unsuccessful. Tell me about that experience. Well, um, it was after I had met a couple of DJs in town, um, Drew Murray, who you just had on your last podcast, um, and also Jim Morrison, who had both were at 90, um, 96 Rock at the time. And I befriended Jim, who then moved over to 94Q, and he was my primary mentor and influence to go into radio myself. But we heard of this WEMO, they called it, which was a carrier current. They still had equipment, um, but we decided we wanted to get a frequency, even just that would cover the campus area. And the FCC turned us down. This was circa 1976. And so when that didn't happen, we had even record service. Then I said, eh, you know what? I think I want to go elsewhere to go to school and try to find a radio station. And that led you to Georgia State. Yes, it wasn't originally the plan, but that's where I ended up after taking a non, the non-credit broadcasting course. And then hearing myself on the radio, They part of it was to play around in the production room. And they had me record a PSA and they said, oh, you'll be on in a couple of weeks. And I'm like, yeah, right. And then I heard myself and I had to pull over to the side of the road. And then I got the idea, let's go to Georgia State for a while while I decide what I want to be when I grow up. Isn't that interesting that we all remember the first time we heard ourselves on the air? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. John, you, you're nodding your head. You you remember that, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, de- early days of RAS. Um, I started in 2007 as a newscaster before I even DJed. And just being able to hear myself and my mom telling me that she heard me uh, in Lawrenceville um, was pretty amazing. Didn't think that a college radio could travel that far because most of my friends who were doing college radio, uh, the frequency was only going, you know, within the campus itself. So that was it was a, it was really um, amazing feeling. Yeah. yeah. It's funny how, how much mom's influences when you come home and they say, I heard you on the radio. <laughs> so, Gail, you were actually involved in the music industry, in the record industry at the same time you're working at RAS. Did you have a sense within the record industry of how the station was perceived in terms of being a place that they could break artists and records? I had a sense of that later when I got into retail. Um, My original work was through One Stops and Rack Jobbers and some distribution. Um, So it wasn't until I got to work for Turtles in the early 80s when we actually had underwriting um, from Turtles to WRAS, and we put out a you know weekly, I think it was weekly, uh, program guide, and you know just how the numbers uh, affected. I mean, especially with the new music at that time, which was now I guess what they would call alternative 
Mm. Uh, I don't even know anymore. Whatever 99X is doing now, um, that was what was happening when I was working at Turtles. And music was, uh, the, the length of time you were there, you went through the disco era, you went through, as you said, alternative was kind of kicking off. How how did how did the music change during your experiences at RAS when you were really fully involved, which was a very long time? Yeah, well, I got there in in seventy six, and at that point, really the punk had not really hit yet. We had some local bands that might have fallen in that category. We played the original self produced single by the B fifty twos and some other local Atlanta bands like the Fans. Um, but mostly we were still in the progressive format that um, that Drew started, and it was very eclectic, not as eclectic as WREK, but we were still playing all kinds of either deep cuts of more popular bands and then more obscure college bands, but we're still more of the, I would say, late hippie genre. Um, but then starting around 77, 78, we started to get creeping in some of the newer sounds, you know, television and you know, the Ramones and some of the bands like that. And by the time, by 78, that was about 50-50 what we were playing. And there was a lot more interest in the new sound. And, you know, I think that's when we really started to see a spike with some of the um, artists that, like Talking Heads, were first played on RAS um, that are now mainstream. So, you know, we started seeing a lot of that from our listeners. Uh, a lot of phone calls. I mean, our request line ran off, ran off the hook when we got to the new music. And Andreas Pruis, who wrote his master's thesis on the station, wrote that when 96 Rock came on with a rock format in 74, RAS had to evolve to deeper album cuts and punk and new wave to differentiate itself. Is, is that kind of, I mean, you were there for a lot of that changeover. Yeah, and it... it... It was not originally part of the format. There might have been special shows in the very beginning. Um, but then I think probably by 77, 78, 79, it was becoming more part of the regular format. I think that was the turning point year. I had, and I, my musical taste changed quite a bit as well as a, as a result. But um, yeah, I mean, it there was it depended on who was the general manager and who was the music director but we had a i think 78 79 that year was when we really hit the map as far as playing a good balance of the more you know older artists as well as the newer ones that were coming along and meantime in pop radio disco was going on in that era you guys yeah, didn't well, touch it <laughs> i mean when i first started in the record business casey and the sunshine band and wild cherry were on the charts you know so I mean, that gives you a sense of timing. But thank God we didn't play much disco at RAS. Um, that would have, I mean, there was there was a one period, I think it lasted a month or two, where they tried to do a disco punk format. It didn't last at all. But uh, yeah, it you know, although so, so many of the traditional bands were also picking up a disco beat from time to time, you know, even the Rolling Stones, so you never know. But we were we were not disco. Disco was pop. And and John, you grew up listening to the radio in Atlanta too. Were you a RAS listener? You know, not actually until I started going to Georgia State that I listened to RAS. Um, because I listened to a lot of like the commercial stations like V103 and uh, all the other like I'm forgetting all the other rock stations that just like kind of disappeared. But mostly like your top forty, um, 
uh, alternative rock hip hop. It was yeah, it wasn't until someone told me about WRAS and WREK that I started listening, probably my freshman year. And I would start to listen at the most random times a day. I just realized, oh man, they're playing music all the time. This is incredible. Um, but uh, yeah, once I started listening, that's pretty much all I listened to uh, through the day. And what was the, because you were there later than Gail's involvement, what was the music format like? You were there 2007 to 2009. Talk to me about the music. Yeah. So the way it went with the three program directors we had was that one covered what was considered indie, which has just become like such a wide range, but it was like kind of like indie rock, electronic kind of music. And then you had another program director dealing with a lot of the hip hop and R&B, the, like the underground hip hop and R&B. The third person was, I think, way more focused on like deeper electronic stuff, more like your deep house, um, IDM type of stuff. Um, but there was a lot of crossover from place to place. And as like, a, in addition to being a newscaster, I became regular rotation DJ, had like a slot, I think, on like Thursday afternoons, like pretty much during drive time. And the way it went was that we had, at least at the time, we had, there would always be 90 albums of rotation. And out of those 90 albums, the three uh, program directors picked 30 each, and they would pick about five to six songs per album. And they would all be mixed up together. And so when I was also there, we were transitioning from um, using CDs to then going digital. So it was an interesting way, place to be there. So sometimes in some shifts, I'd be switching from CD to CD, just going from you know what was uh, already planned on the list to then sometimes it just went straight up digital and I would be coming in for the station breaks, adding in music that I liked as well that still fit the you know non-commercial, underground, independent format. Um, so it was a really fascinating time. Plus you have to remember that like, this is like, post Napster, but like pre Spotify. So people were still downloading, still going to music blogs, but still looking to WRAS as like a place for new music mm -hmm. um, that you wouldn't find at uncommercial stations. Music discovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, if I'm understanding you correctly, at that time you had three program directors, each one focused on a genre of music. So you didn't have one PD making all the decisions. That's a, a, a unique way to program a radio station, isn't it? It is. It is. And I didn't realize that was the case because I actually thought there was it was just the general manager and a program director working together. So it was interesting. I think my guess is that they just wanted to really just diversify the efforts and make sure it wasn't too overwhelming for one person because I did not realize the volume of CDs and, and vinyl. We were still getting a little bit of vinyl then that we were receiving. Um, it was really fascinating. Plus that also kind of branched out into, and the program directors didn't work on it as much because like it really did kind of branch out into like the um, the uh, specialty shows that went on like after your drive time from like about, I think it might've been from like 8 a.m., 8 p.m., probably like 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. is like when we had a lot of the specialty shows in two hour blocks. Um, but yeah, it was it was quite an effort. I was always impressed by the way the three program directors were able to just like select the music that they thought was going to be the most influential, or at least the most uh, interesting to our listeners. Yeah, you could you could imagine um, with the wrong people in those positions, there could be some incredible battles in the music office. Definitely, definitely. Th thankfully, I didn't see any go down. But, but, uh, but yeah, that could happen. So, when when you guys are making music decisions, and when you're on the air, who did you feel your competitors were in Atlanta radio, or did did you feel that there was a competitor out there? You know, I to some extent, I guess we would say WREK, but I honestly felt like we were just kind of competing 
kind of with ourselves to be like to push ourselves to be like as as good as we can be to really bring bring in the artists that we saw coming in the town that were on these independent labels. I don't think we worried too much about the the you know the top 40 stations, the commercial stations. And I think we were lucky that we had such a big reach that we had tons of different callers come in. We had like teenagers who were listening to WRAS from all over this, like, you know, the outskirts of Atlanta to in the city. I knew people who came to this to Georgia State just to DJ at WRAS, which I thought was really fascinating. Like they, they based their college decision on that. I mean, I remember hosting Crossroads, the blue show at uh, on Tuesday nights from 12 to 2 a.m. and having truckers like calling in, crossing the Alabama-Georgia border, you know, sending in the request or saying, thank you for playing you know, whatever it may be at the time, whether it was, um, I'm blanking on who, but, you know, um, just just thankful that we were playing music. So, I, yeah, it's hard to say that. I don't feel like we really had a competitor, per se. I think yeah. we were just trying to make the best shows that we thought we could make. And you were there um, in 2008 when WNNX had gone off the air. Cumulus moved the Q100 format down to 99.7, and suddenly Alternative isn't easily available in Atlanta. Did did your music shift when NNX went away? Did you react to that? No, I don't really think we did because the, the type of alternative that we were playing was definitely bands that to, to us felt were way more commercial, way bigger, like Foo Fighters and Muse and, you know, we're playing arenas. Um, we didn't feel like we had to fill that slot. Um, I, and to be honest, like as much as some of us, I guess some of us who did come from listening to like a lot of those bigger bands missed those stations. Um, I, it didn't feel it, to me, it didn't feel like we had to shift and then play those bigger bands like at all. Um, we just kept doing our thing. So you're a WRIS DJ, but you're already hosting and producing news shows. Um, you eventually went from college radio to public radio. Was that interest in talk programming always there for you? Or did the WRAS experience with long form talk get you more interested in the direction your career took when you got out of school? I would say the latter, because I went into Georgia State thinking I was going to be a, a, a TV reporter and work my way up. And I wanted to be an anchor at CNN. And then when our TV station closed at, uh, for management purposes, another long story, and we found out we could like uh, those of us who were like reporters at a TV station could also do it at WRAS, like in some other way. I, I was like, oh, well, this is what I want to do. And that's what led me and then being able to experiment, being able to hop from station to st or studio to studio and create a show without with very few boundaries. So long as we didn't, you know, cuss or anything um, felt really freeing. And that's what led me to public radio. Oh, 100 percent. Like if, if it hadn't been for even just having WRAS on my resume and then also working in the news department to become the news director and work on the public affairs show, The Hub. And having that influence from the news director who had been a big fan of public radio, I don't think I would have gotten the internship that led me to working at NPR. It was like complete trajectory. Yeah. And, and Gail, I'm curious, when you graduated, um, you graduated with a degree in something totally different, but you ended up going into radio too. What where was your career trajectory headed when you got out of school after your WRAS experience? And how did that change? Well, there was no after my WRAS experience. I was at WRAS actually consistently from 1976 to 1993. Right. And so um, I graduated in 83, but I was still working in, for Turtles at the time. I was still doing regular sh format shifts. 
And I mostly though, after 83, I really only did mostly my special show because of my work schedule, um, which was keeping ahead in the classics. It was classical music. Um, I took it over in the summer of 77. And uh, that was because I had studied classical piano. And also there was a period of time going back to childhood uh, 1966 in the South, they were burning Beatles records because of John Lennon's statement about the Beatles allegedly being more popular than Jesus. And that was very traumatic for me, a very young Beatle maniac. And so I switched to listening to WGKA classical music for a year. I missed all of the pop music of 60, late 66 and 67. And so I knew classical from that. And so when they needed a host, I went ahead and jumped in and I hosted that show until I left RAS in 93. And it was from doing that Sunday morning show that I got a call. Actually, I got a letter from um, Peach State Public Radio that they were interested in having me come to work for them. They were about to sign on the air in 1985. And I was one of their first announcers and the only female announcer at that time. Um, so I went to work for them until 88. Uh, so that was my first, I just actually was recruited. I had never thought about going to work for NPR, but I worked there. I programmed the music, uh, hosted a nightly show Monday through Thursday and Sunday morning show and did the news drop, you know, news segment, local news for middle and South Georgia during all things considered or weekend edition. Uh, left there to go to graduate school um, in 88. And then one day in 1990, I was doing my Sunday morning radio show at RAS, and I get a call from Reva Ezel, and she says, I don't know if you know who I am. And I said, well, yes, I do. You're the general manager at WABE. And she thought she was listening to her station, but she had tuned it to mine, and then she didn't know it until she heard my voice. And she says, I like your sound. Would you be interested in you know, working here part time? And I said, sure, but I need you to know I've worked for George, you know, for Peach State Public Radio. And she didn't have a problem with that. I passed the audition um, and worked there Saturdays for 11 years and then another two years uh, doing fill-ins for Lois Reitz's for John Lemley um, during the mornings because at that time I was working overnight in my second career, well, third career, which was counseling. That's what I got my graduate degree in. You know, sometime we'll have to have a conversation about Peach Straight Radio because you were there when the the... They went on the air, and you had one radio station initially, and that was. And in... then they added. Uh, they we had Columbus, uh, yeah. Warm Springs, Columbus, and then they added Macon, and then they started adding it more after that. But yeah, we only had one ID, and then we when you had to do five IDs in a ten second slot, it was a little difficult. Yeah, like during a live opera broadcast or yeah. something. Well, it, both of you have had public radio experience. What what are some things that you learned in college radio that transferred well to your public radio experience? John? Ooh, I think being able to think outside the box and think freely, because with RAS, there was, you know, there weren't too many restrictions on what we could do. It, honestly, I felt like there was a sandbox to play in, especially on the news side, because by the time I was there, in, in the late 2000s, the news department wasn't as strong as I was I was told it was, at least Jeff Walker um, told me it wasn't as strong as it was. And I think he really encouraged me to. So being able to listen to public radio when I was in college and kind of take some of those little elements, whether it be through like storytelling in This American Life 
or like how to present, um, even by listening to NPR newscasts, I was able to practice that, um, then take that to public radio. And also in terms of like the freewheeling sense of like being able to pitch ideas, um, that gave me the confidence to then go into public radio and say, hey, like, you know, this is how I think. I'm not trying to think the same way y'all are and let's mix things up and let's bring different ideas and perspectives. I also say the probably the biggest thing I learned from WRAS that I took into public radio was actually editing audio. Like I um, was able to just go into Adobe Audition, teach myself. Um, there'd be some nights actually where I'd be um, co-hosting Crossroads in one studio with one of my best friend, Kyle Stapleton, who basically convinced me to like co-host Crossroads with him when there was an opening. Um, and in between station breaks, um, when he was queuing up the music, different, putting on different um, uh, vinyl from his collection and from the station's collection, I'd run into the other station and was editing audio on on Adobe Audition for the following day's episode of The Hub, like trying to piece together a, a, an hour-long interview with a professor or a musician or a comedian that I'd interviewed just days or a week before. So having that efficiency to multitask, for lack of a better phrase, and to also be able to kind of like work on different things and experiment, I took that into college or from college radio into public radio, and it, it greatly helped my like uh, my, my uh, post college career. Gail, well, I didn't do a lot of production because um, I was mostly just doing on air hosting. But one thing that did, we did emphasize was making the um, news broadcast. We started carrying ABC News, um, especially during the Gulf War. I think we were having a lot of news breaks, and so we had to learn how to really work the clock. I mean, I, I think I learned that more on the job um, at Peach State than I did at RASP, but I think in my case, it was the ability to have a deep knowledge of classical music, and I was a language major undergraduate, and so I studied a lot of languages, uh, Spanish and French, you know, but then when I started working at Peach State, this is why I was in school so long, I realized I'd been faking German for years. So I started taking German postgraduate and almost majored in it. And so now, so by the time I auditioned at WABE, I knew how to not only pronounce that, but I knew how to say Gennady Rostezvinsky because I listened to uh, <laughs> Jonathan Phelps at WABE. So I think the languages that I learned in school helped me in my particular classical music hosting career. And you guys both... Um have had really kind of different starts, but Gail, you were in on the ground floor of Peach State, and and John, when you got out of school, you end up at one of the biggest public stations in the country, WNYC, and you're with NPR, and Gail, you're with a really influential, you know, different broadcasters here in Atlanta. What was the biggest eye-opening thing? What was the big difference that you found when you got into public radio as opposed to college radio, what changed for you? Mm. Oh, structure. 100% was the structure. The amount of things that were streamlined, <laughs> the amount of uh, levels of approval you needed to go through. And also, even though I was running the news side of things, and more of my love, honestly, was doing the music programming and the music and actually being a DJ and on being on air, I realized there's so many more steps to actually getting on air. And there's so many steps to pitching an idea and for that idea to get on air, whether it was pitching um, a segment for a show and being like, we need this guest to talk about, um, I guess at the time the, the, war, the war in Iraq or Afghanistan. 
um, or we need someone to cover this thing about the Grammys or this even this musician, even pitching musicians, actually, I think was even the, the funny part. Um, because at, at RAS, we were like, so long as it kind of fits the general theme of what we're going for, go ahead and interview that guest. Um, NPR was a different case. We, I, it's like I had to state the case to be to say um, we need someone like, I don't know, uh, MGMT was super big when I was uh, in college or like Vampire Weekend or um, or Yesair. It's like it, it kind of took a lot more effort. Um, but in turn, I will say that there was a lot more support in what was needed. Like I, if there was something I wanted to create, we had a whole team. We had editors, producers, um, engineers who would actually bring it all together. We worked cohesively as a team. And I think also the fact that we were all getting paid <laughs> was probably a big factor. Yeah. Um, That's kind of nice. So, yeah, it was nice. I mean, I, I do appreciate the, the bit of money I was able to earn as a news director, but I realized most of the station wasn't paid unless you were management. So honestly, I love doing it from the volunteer aspect. Anyhow, it was, it was a labor of love. Gail? Well, I, I worked for 17 years and never made a penny at WRAS, so it was nice being paid on the job. But, um, you know, I think for me, because of when I worked, I either worked second shift at Peach State, so everybody was leaving when I came in and on the weekends. So it was just very lonely and sitting there and a lot of the programming was coming from the network and then you just had very little to do. Um, so that was one of the things I think at WABE, it was a little less so, but even then on Saturdays, I would see the person I relieved and then the person who was coming on after me. Um, but I think that we just didn't have the same creativity, you know, which is what I think was the, the total magic of, of uh, college radio was that you had more freedom, even within a format to be more creative, to to tap into that part of yourself. And I think for me and in, in, you know, in both stations in the public radio, I had to program for program guides. So we'd have to program over a month in advance what music we were going to play. And, you know, so you didn't have any sense of flow. You know, you're just working with timing. And and I had to learn how to program that way as opposed to what I did on Sunday morning which was just come in there and do whatever I felt like in the moment, you know, based on how it sounded at that, you know, so it had more of a flow. But, um, you know, I guess I was never really a radio, radio person. I was more accidental. Of course, for me, it was more about the music. And, um, you know, so I don't, my career was an accidental radio career, um, but I loved it. And I'm glad that I had that experience. And obviously I loved it because I stayed at the station so long at WRAS. You know, it's it's um, it's interesting. The the question kind of becomes if if you're going to college and you're working in college radio, is the mission of a college radio station to prepare people for a career in broadcasting or is it to al allow you to just blossom and, and bloom and then get out and figure out what works? Uh, in you know, it depends. It depends on who you ask, because in the beginning of RAS. Um, and you can ask some of their general managers from the earlier part of the 70s, and they will tell you that the purpose was as a training ground, a professional training ground. And so it had more of that emphasis. It's shifted to more of a creative, I think. I mean, there were still people who wanted to work in radio or who got jobs because they had worked in radio and stayed in the radio or went into television. But for so many people, and I, I organized station reunions for many years, starting in the 80s. And so, you know, I got to talk to or, or get um, typed bios from most of the people who'd worked at the station over, well, I guess the last reunion we did would have been the 40th. So every 40 years of a college radio station, and so many did not 
have a broadcasting career goal, but they learn so much about everything else. And to a person, they will tell you, this was our fraternity. This was our sorority. This was our, you know, happy place, the best part of our lives. And it prepared us for whatever else we decided to do for careers or multiple careers. So um, I think that, you know, having to have a responsibility as kids, you know, um, was something that because it was run by your peers and that's why i left when i did in 93 because i was turning 37 and these 20 something kids were you know having mother issues with me and i said okay i think my time is up <laughs> i love that well if if you were talking to a student today who whose career is that you know they're seeing a career in broadcasting what, what advice would you give them gail and what would you tell a, a kid if they didn't have mother issues with you or if they did and they wanted your advice mama's advice <laughs> what would you tell well, them? I, you know is there georgia state de-emphasized the radio station after the takeover um with uh, georgia public broadcasting of uh, mo most of the daytime on air terrestrial signal um, but I happened to have gone back to school in 2020 and I was taking the little tour of this campus because it had grown so much. And we went by the radio station and I started talking it up to these kids who were like fascinated to know that there was a radio station there. And they said that their enrollment, people wanting to work, their numbers went way up. But what I would tell anybody, if you look at anybody who's anybody who's worked in broadcasting, most of them have had a radio stint. And that's where you learn how to talk. That's when you learn how to modulate your voice. That's where you learn how to communicate and to ask questions and do interviews or do production or really immerse yourself in music or whatever it is the reason that you're doing any kind of broadcasting. So I think it is it has been, you know, it's just a well-kept secret out there at this point. John, you're nodding your head. Yeah, hundred percent agree. If 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 you're gonna go into a a, a you know um, a, uh, a career in broadcasting. You got public, uh, college radio is the place to be. It's just so open and freewheeling and you're able to experiment and yeah, find your voice, just like Gail said. And I was surprised by the amount of folks who I was in journalism classes with. I was a journalism major, um, a graduated journalism degree and who didn't end up ha having internships. And I was like, guys, how are you going to like get off and go do your thing? At the same time, I also realized most of the folks I was with at RAS didn't go on to have um, audio career or careers in broadcasting. But if you do, highly recommend doing um, college radio. I think it just, it is, does feel like a sort of fraternity sorority, like this kinship, whether or not you even DJ at the same station. I meet folks who DJed across the nation, different countries, and we can just talk about those experiences. And it's just, it's so essential. If you really just want to find your voice, if you really just want to get connected, it's what led me to getting the internships and jobs that I have. It's it's so essential. And you went through public radio and now you're really immersed in the world of podcasting. Is yeah. that an important thing for a student to, you know, a, a kid who wants to go into some sort of audio entertainment? Mm -hmm. That's That's pretty powerful these days, isn't it? 
so powerful because when I was there, podcasting was still on the very much hobbyish side. And there had been talks about streaming on Grass Online. It didn't come to fruition until afterward, but we had been talking about making podcasts. And I would say, definitely, if you want to go into podcasting, definitely do college radio. Because at this point, I would hope and assume that a lot of college radio stations are also making podcasts and simultaneously can run those podcasts on the air. And so, and that would have been my goal if podcasting had been more of a thing um, in the late 2000s. Um, definitely. That's your place to experiment, find your voice. No, you don't have to answer anybody. Just put it out there. See what it's like. You got to get the bad stuff out to get the good stuff in, you know? So this has been awesome. I appreciate you guys time so much. And I look forward to talking to both of you. We've, we've hit on some things here. We should maybe have a follow-up conversation with. Thank you, Gail. Thank you so much. John, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking your time all the way out there in LA. Oh, you're most welcome. I appreciate you, Dennis. Thunderpod.